Am I on? I'm on. Good morning, people. This is the day that the Lord has made. Excellent. The title of the sermon today is Great Expectations. How many of you read the book? How many of you were forced to read the book in junior high or high school? Charles Dickens, right? The main character of that book was often disappointed, so the title may seem optimistic and to, something to draw you into reading it, but so goes life. You have hope. The hopes can be dashed. We do have an election on Tuesday, and the entire nation is sitting on the edge of their seats, and I, for one, will be having a party with my very best friends in Spokane, watching the tube until we can't take it anymore hoping to see some kind of a resolution to the stress and strain on the social, political, moral, spiritual fabric of the United States of America. What a blessing to be a citizen of the United States. How much more of a blessing to have our citizenship in heaven. Because we know that the kingdoms of this world are tossed to and fro by the winds of change, by armies, by tyrants, by hordes of people rising and falling with the fortunes of good health and bad health, wealth and poverty, agreement or disagreement. And boy, we feel the wind blowing in the good old USA. So it is right and good for the people of God who have that permanent, unshakable citizenship in heaven to pray for the nation in which they live, our country. I am a patriot, and I'm a political junkie. But I'm so glad that God gave me faith when I was 17 years old in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there is a kingdom that is coming, which shall supplant every other kingdom the earth has ever known. And you see it in Daniel's vision of that statue. And there is a rock coming down from the rock, which will shatter every kingdom of the earth and replace that last great gasp of tyranny, the kingdom of Antichrist. And Jesus shall rule and reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. You know the song. You have a new pastor. Congratulations. I just had the privilege this morning just for a few minutes to chat with Tim and Chris. You have great expectations, as does the church. Every minister of the gospel who has the opportunity to be a senior pastor in a local church is a -a one-of-a-kind diamond, right? Custom-made, custom-cut by the master's hands. And so as you learn to get to know him and his wife, appreciate his gifts, his strengths, and as you come to supply strength where he is weak and walk arm in arm together forward, you will see what great things he can do, God can do in this valley. So find it, find the sweet spot in fellowship with him, and we look forward to it. I'm looking forward with great expectations to Thanksgiving. 
because I was in Guatemala this last week where my daughter resides. She's been a missionary there for 12 years, has three cute little kids. They're super cute because they look like Laurel. And by the way, my wife is here today, Laurel, and our friends Greg and Julie Carmen from Spokane. I went down there to meet with their board of uh, missions board down there and uh, help them with their ministry issues. They've been hit by COVID harder than we have. Country was shut down most of the year. And in fact, they're having public services for church for the first time today. It's been that rough. And so my daughter helps run mission teams down there. Hasn't really been able to do much all year long because all the teams had to cancel. But some of the churches have sent money and assistance for the poor especially. And so even while I was there, we had a chance to distribute 100 bags of food to a little children's ministry called Paso a Paso, step by step, in a little village called San Antonio, no, not Texas, San Antonio Agua Caliente, Hot Springs. And all these little Mayan women came in, young and old, to get 20 pounds of food, rice, beans, cooking oil, even some cookies for the kids to take back home, and they just felt so blessed. So uh, we have a great partnership down there with uh, folks there. And we're glad Melanie's coming home for Thanksgiving. We're all going to meet at my son's house, Andrew, in Forsyth, Montana, for a giant extended family dinner for 35 people. Right? Can you imagine? So I know for the holidays, you know, some families are so dysfunctional. When everybody finally comes together, it's just like the Bickersons. But my expectation for me and my house is that the family of God's going to gather and we're going to pray and thank the Lord for the United States of America, for the many blessings we've experienced all the way back to the days of the pilgrims, right? And we're going to love our little kids and tell them the story of how God blesses a nation who calls the Lord their God, their God. So I'm looking forward to it. Well, our scripture passages is Acts chapter 1. And we're just going to look at the first 11 verses. And in here, I see a theme of great expectations. And unlike the novel that Dickens wrote, where there's some disappointment, when God gives promises and when God sets hope before us, he never disappoints. And there are several items of hope and expectation in this passage um, that vary. But I think expectation is the thing that links them all together. So if you turn in your Bibles uh, to Acts chapter 1, I'm just going to read it, if I can find my glasses. My little Guatemalan granddaughter, she says, Grandpa, you have your son glasses? Emphasis on that second syllable, son glasses. Let's read. Acts 1, 1 through 11. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, verse 7, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm sure I've said it before to you because I've been with you a number of times in the last couple of years, but the book of Acts is my favorite book of the whole Bible. And that's because when I first went to Bible school, I was really a brand new Christian, and I just had no idea about any of these stories. Not the ones in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but certainly not the ones in the Acts of the Apostles. And as I discovered this book in that class, I just thought, oh wow, how dramatic it is to be a Christian and to follow Jesus in the context of our church life and the mission that God has for us and how I love to trace the adventures of the apostles from chapter 1 on to chapter 28 in the book of Acts. It was just fascinating to me, and it captured my heart, drew me into the ministry. There's nothing like it. And that's because, people, this is history, not a fable, which is where I begin. The first expectation I have when I read this book is the expectation of a great book, because this is part two, the writer says. You look at verse 1 and he talks about a previous piece of literature that was composed. The writer who does not name himself says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And he is referring, if you know your Bible, to the book of Luke. Luke and Acts are a pair. It's volume 1 and volume 2. And you'll see a very simpler, similar introduction in the book of Luke if you go and look at it, which I won't do today for the sake of time. But clearly they are companion pieces of literature. It is written by someone unnamed, but it can be discerned to be Luke if you read the book of Acts. And you notice very carefully through the book, sometimes he says, they did this and they did that. And sometimes he said, we did this, and we did that, and we went here, and we went there. Depending upon when Luke was with Paul or not with Paul on his missionary journeys. It's really fun to trace that. It is written to someone unknown to us, Theophilus. What does that name mean in the Greek? Friend of God. Friend of God. It may be a real person, but it may be a literary device in which this book is addressed to those that love the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the Christian faith. And this book is for the edification of believers 
that they might know more exactly the things that the Lord did after the ascension of Jesus into heaven. You and I, perhaps, really what we are is we're the friend of God. And this book is for us. These first couple of verses then are almost like a recap because he talks about everything Jesus began to do. And we see that in the Gospel of Luke where the ministry is picked up and Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist and begins his public ministry. And we follow the drama of that with all the people that he blessed and healed and taught for three some years, some say four, until he was taken up to the cross and gave his life a ransom for many. Then buried. And then raised on the third day in glory. And then surprised the apostles with a couple of appearances which freaked them out. Especially, I'm sure, Thomas, <laughs> as we find out in John's gospel, didn't believe in the first time Jesus appeared. He said, I won't believe it till I see him and touch him. They had an opportunity to do all that. And, and then in all the gospels, they really end with the commissioning of the apostles to be his witnesses and promised the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower their lives and their witness. So we have that recap also here. But now the book of Acts picks up right at the time where Jesus ascended into heaven and goes on from there. It is this pivot point that our sermon lies here today, right here. What happened just after the resurrection and just at the ascension of Jesus into heaven? Of course, the skeptic reads all this and thinks, man, what a fairy tale. I mean, guys rising from the dead, spirits coming down from heaven, big fat talk about a kingdom to come. What a bunch of nonsense. It's always been said about Christians that we follow fables. Surely this is a day for us to know our scriptures well. To know that your New Testament is not fable, but fact. Not fiction, but history. And that everything Jesus did and said, in fact, fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies to the T. So that they marveled and thought, surely he is the Son of God. They testified of the resurrection because they saw him with their own eyes and felt him with their own hands and ate with him at a campfire. And every one of them gave their lives for what they knew to be true. Jesus, he is not dead. He is very much alive. That is our faith. And so as you read Acts, as you read Luke, Luke, realize this, you are reading history. You are reading a carefully researched and documented historical account. It is fabulous, is it not? So we have great expectations of a great book. What is going to be in this book of Acts? I commend it to you for a lifetime of study. It will carry you for a hundred years of Christian ministry. All that is in there. Well, we have also in here expectations of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told them in the Gospel of John that up until this point, the Holy Spirit had been with them, but not in them. Huge distinction. And here he wants to make something clear to them as he begins or as he prepares to ascend into heaven. Verse 4, 
gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This expectation is not novel. This expectation of the coming of the Holy Spirit is not something that appears in the scriptural narrative all of a sudden with Jesus, but it is in fact the promise of the Old Testament and all the prophecies about the coming kingdom of God. Those of you that are Bible scholars know that Jerusalem fell and was destroyed by armies and the temple was torn down and the kingdom of Israel was destroyed by the Babylonians in the 6th century B.C. And in that context, all the prophets that God raised up to speak encouragement to Israel said, take heart in this. You surely are being tested and refined and disciplined. But one day the kingdom shall be restored to Israel and the throne of David will be reestablished. The anointed one will come and your nation will rise again, not to sin again, but you will rise in righteousness and repentance. You will be restored in your nation from your children to your crops, to your leadership, to your health in all things. You will see Israel blossom like a rose again. And the center of it all will be when Messiah comes. And in those days, I will pour out my spirit upon you. And you will no longer sin like you did before when you broke that first covenant. But you will know me from the greatest to the least of you. And you will not have to teach each other to know the Lord. Because you will all know the Lord. Because my spirit will be upon you all. That is the Old Testament portrait of the expectation of the coming of the kingdom of God. Therefore, friends, as you know, when Jesus and John the Baptist took the stage of history and said to the people of Israel, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was a a mouthful, people. To announce the coming of the kingdom was to announce the restoration of Israel, to announce the coming of the Messiah and also to announce the coming of the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon all in that kingdom. A kingdom of righteousness. Man, I am all for that right about now. How about you? My nation is insane. But the nation that God is assembling, the people that God is pulling together to make a population for his own possession is going to be a nation of righteousness. And our king is infallible, does not need a teleprompter, His hard drive and his computer is impeccable, perfect, and my Jesus never fails. That is the kingdom we are part of. Well, it's a kingdom they have an expectation of, and part of that was the coming of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus specifically told them here as he is preparing to leave them, really, in the flesh, said, stay right here. Because there is something that is about to unfold, which is not just of historical proportions, but it is epically, scripturally, a turning point in the redemptive history of God. And beginning with you few, the Holy Spirit indeed is going to be poured out 
in the inauguration of this kingdom. Stay in Jerusalem and wait for it. Now, you get a little hint of the timeline here because he's told them that for 40 days since Jesus' resurrection, he made various appearances to the apostles um, with convincing proofs, Luke says, so that they would know that really he was the Messiah, he was the accepted Lamb of God, and he was indeed alive. 40 days. But we know that 50 days over the Passover lamb was slain. What happened? The day of Pentecost. Pente means 50, right? So virtually, literally, in 10 more days, this was all going to take place. And we read about it in Acts chapter 2. Talk about great expectations. If you were one of the little fellas there, right? Peter and John, James, Andrew, Nathaniel, the bunch of them. And he gave me that expectation. I would think, all right, let's roll. It begins. The kingdom of God that you announced when you first preached is about to be unfolded. And we're your right hand and left hand, right hand and left hand guys, right? Yeah. So they asked for it. We have that expectation. Then we have the expectation of the kingdom itself, literally. And we see that in verse 6, the great question. I think it's the great question we all still have. When is all this going to unfold exactly? When will this age pass and give way to the next age, the great age, the final age, the age of the kingdom of God? So they said, verse 6, Hey, Lord, (laughs) is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? I'm sure they talked of it often during his earthly ministry. And our writer says that Jesus talked to them about the kingdom of God for 40 days up in verse 3. So why wouldn't they ask the question, is it now? I mean, it seems like the table is set, Lord. You are Messiah. Today is a perfect day. (laughs) And his answer, what do you think? Did it disappoint? Very possibly. It definitely was redirecting them. And perhaps they did not expect this at all. But Jesus said, as you read verse 8, 7 and 8, it's not for you to know times and seasons that the Father is determined by his own authority. I hate that. (laughs) Sounds very much like what Jesus taught, right, in the Olivet Discourse. And you read the latter chapters of Matthew or Luke. and He really had emphasized concerning the end of the age that we should not stand on a mountain and try to do a countdown concerning the days. But what instead he emphasized was that we needed to be busy serving him right up until the last hour and not fiddle around with lesser things. Be like those virgins, right, with their lamps trimmed and brightly burning. Be like people wearing the wedding clothes. Be like those servants who are about their master's business and not beating their fellow servants And getting drunk all day. That's what Jesus emphasized. Not timing, but obedience. 
Well, here again, they're asking the time question, the big T question. And for the umpteenth time, really just Jesus had to say, nope. (laughs) Yeah, are we there yet? Very good, Danny. (laughs) Are we there yet? Jesus didn't even say yes or no. He just said, it's not for you to know that. So what I want you to do is change your focus, Jesus basically is saying, and understand the mission that I have for you. Rather than being obsessed with the timeline, I want you to be obsessed with these tasks. That you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. That is what their focus needed to be. And you know those are cities and regions, of course, that work their way out in concentric circles from home base where they were in Jerusalem to their entire region of all Judea to Samaria, a little beyond them there, an area they didn't even like, right, that other region of sinful people, and and ultimately to the ends of the earth. They were to be his witnesses. Why is this? Why is this? Well, it's because of what everybody finally figured out, but didn't immediately figure out, and that is Messiah had twin starring roles, right? In the great drama of redemption, he is the coming king, but he was also the lamb that was slain, the suffering servant, right? Slain for the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. That's what John the Baptist said about him. And in fact, there is such a thing as then Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And the thing that took some time for everybody there, those disciples, to wrap their brain around is that his first appearance was not to enforce the righteousness of God upon the world, but instead to show mercy and grace and to provide a sacrifice for sin for all who would look to the Messiah. For apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And every lamb that was ever slain really pointed to the one sufficient sacrifice for sin, Messiah himself, Jesus, the Christ or Messiah. And so significant and necessary was that work of Messiah That in fact, in God's design, there was a first coming of the Son to accomplish that work and then a great pause. You guys all have electronic games, right? When your mom calls you for dinner, what do you do? Do you erase your game and lose all your points? No, man, you just set pause. I'm going to go eat a hot dog and then I'm going to come back and we'll finish that. God has the most giant pause button imaginable. And it is the great pause of mercy and grace between his first coming, which is for you, and an offer of grace for everybody. Come to me, all you who hunger and thirst and are weary and heavy laden, and you will find food that you don't know about and rest that you need. Come to me, believe in me, and I will give you life. You will never thirst again. 
But his second coming will be in great power and great glory. The culmination of all things where righteousness will be finally established. And the armies of heaven will come down with Jesus himself. And the wickedness of this world will be subdued under his power. Huge difference in those two missions. And the apostles here are having a chance to realize that though they are fulfilled by the same person, they are not fulfilled in the same era. So Jesus said, thanks for asking about that. The restored kingdom to Israel. He didn't say there wouldn't be such a thing. But that the plan for now was for an interlude, a pause in which the primary activity of the followers of Jesus Christ is to tell the story of Jesus and his love. Of his teachings, of his miracles, of his personage, of his divinity, and most importantly, of his work on the cross for all of us. Of his burial, of his resurrection, of his ascension and even beyond that. That is the mission for now. And what is so exciting is that the coming of the Holy Spirit was not just for leading the disciples into righteousness, which the Holy Spirit does. He works out his fruit in your life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. But more than that, the Holy Spirit comes to empower us for mission. And the exciting drama and narrative of the book of Acts is that we see that unfold in the life and the world of the early church is that ordinary people like you and me, when God comes down and fills our lives because of our faith in Jesus, the very spirit of God energizes you and me to do great things in his name, not for our glory, but for his glory. This we need to teach our children from the time they can first speak. These things we need to teach our teenagers and let them know that God has a great and wonderful plan for their life. Not just to be a librarian or a mathematician or a garbage man or a contractor or the mayor of Chihuahua. But God has a plan for us to be his witnesses in this world and to tell them Messiah is great. Messiah has come. Messiah is our life. Messiah is our Lord. And in a thousand ways, you guys, he wants to commission you and me to be his witnesses. Now we do that in word and we also do that in deed. So every time you kiss a little baby, you're proclaiming Jesus and his love. Every time you kiss an old lady, you are proclaiming Jesus and his love. Every time you tell your wife you're sorry, you proclaim his love. Every time you tell a gospel story to someone who's never heard it before, you are proclaiming Jesus' love, right? When you tip the waiter beyond all that they ever deserve because they did not pour coffee in your cup off enough, you proclaim Jesus, right? When we get along in our churches and we're not the Bickersons here, we proclaim Jesus to our world. In every way possible, by word and by deed, our mission is to proclaim Jesus 
Because that is why he left us here for now, and that is why he has sent his spirit, according to Acts 1, 7, and 8. So we need to have an expectation of being used by God and say, Lord, how do you want to use me today? And you can go down to the mayor's office and give her a kiss. And maybe you'll fulfill your mission for the day right there. I'm sorry, I'm picking on you. But isn't that exciting, you guys, to think that the Lord, he is on our side. He wants to use us as his servants. He has great things for us to do. He's commissioned us and he's empowered us by his spirit. And he has an expectation that we will listen to what he says here and make ourselves available to him for just that. Well, the final expectation that is here is the expectation of his second coming. And in some churches, it is not fashionable to talk about the second coming because it seems so preposterous. The sign of the Son of Man should appear in the sky and that he would descend with the clouds in power and great glory, bringing his holy ones with him. seems preposterous that the Jesus guy of 2,000 years ago is still alive and is going to do anything at all let alone come flying down from heaven and take over the world. That is our faith. And the second coming of Jesus Christ is writ large, not only in the New Testament, but also in the Old, but certainly in the New. Every gospel points to it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the epistles mention it multiple times, and the book of Revelation certainly focuses on it. Jesus ascended here in our passage right in the sight of the apostles. It says a cloud received him out of their sight. And they did what you and I would do. They just stood there dumbfounded and stared. And they could just think about his final instructions. And um, I find this very human and almost comical because as they're standing there staring and just... You know, it's almost like the end of the movie there. (laughs) It says two angels, well, two men in white clothing stood beside them. I assume these are angels. And they said, man of Galilee, why why are you staring at the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go. A couple key words there, right? This Jesus. Exactly that Jesus, the Jesus you knew and loved and have followed for four years and ate with and watched be crucified and witnessed him rising again from the grave and this Jesus that you just were talking to on the mountain here, that Jesus is coming back again. That truth, that hope, buoyed the apostles and everything they did for the next several decades in good times and in bad, in prosperous ministry and in intense persecution. Their eye was on the prize, the soon coming of their Lord and Master to bring their reward home to them. And it's not only this same Jesus, but it's also this same way. As you watched him go, personally, visibly, And gloriously, you will watch him come again, personally, visibly, 
and gloriously. Who believes that? I do, man. I am banking on it more than Wells Fargo. (laughs) Certainly. I have relatives in my family that doubt my sanity. But I am right with Peter who said in one of his epistles, set your hope completely, right, on the salvation that is going to be revealed to you. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his glorious face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim, right, in the light of his glory and grace. The expectation, the great The greatest expectation that a human soul could ever have is not that your Amazon stock will rise a few more points or that the right candidate will be approved on Tuesday or that your rascally husband will finally get a job. But the greatest hope to have all your dreams come true, the thing that your soul craves and longs for is one day to see my Savior face to face. And so we look forward to it. We don't fear it, right? We're not having a cow and thinking, well, if he comes back, surely I'm undone. But instead, in faith, because we're living for him, we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, right? We all have the rest of our lives to flesh this out, right? Some of us have a few days. Some of us have a few hours. Some of us have 60 years, not me. I am past my prime now, I know it, because I'm at 62. What does that mean? Yeah, it does. What it means is like, boy, if you're ever going to get with it, get with it now. If you're ever going to be focused on something good, do it now. If you're going to use your life for something grand and glorious and just beautiful, do it now. Because 62 is not 22. And that is just an awesome thing. I think that because we are mortal in the flesh, this is not about a deceleration in our lives, you guys. It's about an acceleration. Because the further from your birthday you are, the closer to glory you are. Whether it be his coming in the sky and power and great glory or whether it just means that I pass from this life because I got really sick. But either way, the more years I live, the more I ought to be absolutely captured by his great calling and promises and be further motivated to take advantage of every opportunity I have because my days are short. Do it now. Therefore, looking on the audience, I will say the most awesome thing about this church is that you are old. Therefore, the motivation can be high. Your experience and skill spiritually, socially, and emotionally is great. Your capacity to be awesome far exceeds that of any 20-year-old in this town. Because you know your stuff. You know life. You know love. You know Jesus. And knowing whom you have believed, you are persuaded that he is able to keep that which you've committed to him until that day. What day? That day, the one we were just talking about. Rev it up, Pastor, welcome. 
There is an opportunity here, is there not, to serve the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we love you for what you have done. You've redeemed for yourself people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, even us, to be your people. Help us, Lord, to live for you, to be glad that by your grace we heard your voice and we said, yes, Lord, I will follow you. May your gifts and your graces be powerfully at work in our lives so that our people, our friends, our neighbors in this community will know that you are Lord of all. We pray in Jesus' name.